All right, let's, let's, let's pray and let's dig into the word. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you, Lord. We ask now as we go to your word that your Holy Spirit would be our, speaker, our teacher. And Lord, we just thank you for the example that we see in your word, both the good and the poor examples, because they're exhortations, they're warnings for us, or they're sources of encouragement. And Lord, we'll see both of those tonight. And I just thank you for everyone who's here, none by chance, all by divine appointment. We pray for those that are watching on live stream as well, that you administer to them. We thank you, we praise you, we love you. We pray that man would decrease, that your spirit would increase, that you would be glorified. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray and all God's people said. Amen. So Chronicles, quickly, as we've talked about, this is an example. So what's happened is they've been in captivity for 70 years in Babylon. And now as they are returning back to Jerusalem, they've been given this by the chronicler to, to remind them of what Jerusalem was really all about. All the great things that God had done there prior, because they're coming back to a Jerusalem that's been decimated. And so they're going to come back to this place, and God is going to use them for the generations to come. And so First Chronicles really focuses on King David, and we've been seeing that the last several weeks. And we're going to see in tonight's text that some things are kind of left out. And part of that, I, you know, only God knows some of the things are left out, are left out for a reason. What I mean by that, if you, if you go look at 2 Samuel, and you look at First Chronicles, a lot of it's very similar. But there are some events that the Holy Spirit, who inspired the Word of God, chose to leave out. We'll see one of those in tonight's text. So if you have your outline, grab it. I tell the message, lessons. We're going to try to do two chapters tonight, by the way. We'll see how that works. Uh, well, one of them was only eight verses. So I could have taught eight verses, but I thought, you know what? Let's get more of God's Word and less of mine. Amen? So First Chronicles 20 and 21, we're going to see lessons from the life of King David. And first of all, we're going to see that compromise leads to sin. Compromise leads to sin. Compromise is the enemy of calling. If God can't, if the enemy can't, excuse me, if the enemy can't disqualify you from ministry, he wants to distract you from ministry. And we're going to see in the life of King David, if you've been here the last several weeks, King David is now on the throne, and King David's been victorious. He's wiping out all his enemies. They're all united behind him finally. We're going to see tonight that that's going to go to his head a little bit, and he's going to become complacent, and he's going to compromise. And even though they don't talk about it in the text tonight, it's going to lead to his adultery with Bathsheba. Second thing we see is how to raise giant killers. And so King David, we're going to see that he was a man of compromise, but also he was a man who was a great example in many areas of his life to follow. The Bible tells us that he was the greatest of all the kings of Israel. That's what the Word of God says, so we know that that's true. And we know, true that he was a man after God's own heart, because the Bible tells us that. So even though he was a flawed man, he was a man used mildly by God. And it should be an encouragement for all of us, because anybody else flawed out there besides me? So we're flawed men and women, and God chooses to use the foolish things of the world to compound the wise. And we're going to see that there's some giant killers in the, in the last few verses of chapter 20, and there's not a doubt in my mind they learned that by watching David's example. Then we will see in chapter 21 that pride goes before destruction. We know the devil can't make us do anything. We know that with temptation, God gives us a way of escape. We know there's wisdom in the counsel of many. Then we're going to see the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And I don't know why this has, happened. This has been a topic of conversation repeatedly for me. I get a lot of calls from the radio programs that we have all over and got four today. And a couple of them, are, it's, a, it's always this kind of same thing like, well, you know what, I, I love the Lord, but I continue to struggle. 
I continue to go back to my old wife sometimes, and I continue to make horrible mistakes, and I continue to sin, and there's a topic of conversation that happens often, and I want to just say this. When I, whenever I'm told that, I always say, how did you feel about your sin before, and how do you feel about it now? And as Christians, we're not sinless, but we should sin less, amen? And at the same time, when you know the Lord, before you knew the Lord, sin was just part of life. But when you came to know the Lord, you're convicted by your sin because the Holy Spirit lives inside of you and you hate it. Amen? And so that's how we know that we've truly been born again. It's that conviction of the Holy Spirit. Point number five, the consequences of succumbing to temptation. While the Lord forgives our sin, the consequences often remain. When we ask God to forgive us, he is faithful and just to forgive us. The Bible tells us that. So we know that he will. But we need to know that the consequences can remain. If I go out and commit adultery, God may forgive me, but my wife might not. Amen? Amen? <laughs> and I'm fired as pastor the next day. Amen? And my testimony's been ruined. So we see the consequences of succumbing to temptation. Again, the Lord forgives our sin, but consequences remain. And then number six, we cannot sacrifice that which costs us nothing. We're going to see in tonight's text that David's going to be offered the threshing floor to make a sacrifice after his sinful behavior, to make a sacrifice unto the Lord. And he says, I won't, you know, take that. I won't make a sacrifice. That which costs me nothing. You know why that is? Because it costs our Savior everything. Amen? And it's not truly surrendering life to the Lord, again, if there's not a price attached to it. And then finally, his sacrifice is enough. So let's begin there in verse 1, 1 Chronicles chapter 20, compromise that leads to sin. Now, David again has been king over Israel for a number of years now. He's made Jerusalem the capital of the nation. He's brought the ark back, right? These are, these are things being told to that next generation, reminders. And now he's going to get himself into trouble. Look at verse 1. It happened in the spring of that year, as the time that kings go out to battle, that Joab led the armed forces and ravaged the country of the people of Amnon. And then it says, and came and besieged Reba. But David stayed at Jerusalem and Joab defeated Reba and overthrew it. So what's the key verse in that whole thing right there? What is it? And David stayed in Jerusalem. So David is the king. Kings were expected to go out to battle. They were not just the king of the nation, they were the leader of the military. David has been leading them out into battle. If you remember from the last chapter that there was a, a battle that took place and David hung back and they didn't win. And then David went out with them and they won the battle. And so here's the exhortation that, that as, as the king, he should have been front and center in the battle. And we as believers are not called to retire. We're not called to sit back and do nothing and to compromise. And so the exhortation here is that we'll see what the life of King David is sadly, again, he missed out because he remained at home. And so just remember that they had recently won a battle and uh, remember how they humiliated David's men and then David went back out and they won the battle. And now David, again, they've been victorious. David's in that position that he always desired and was called to. It was a declaration of war when they went after his men. David led him in the battle. He won the battle. And now the next battle comes. Notice it says there, in the spring of the year. So David has just won a couple of battles. He's been faithful in the midst of them. And now he's becoming lazy. He's becoming 
uh, haphazard about what his calling is in life. And we must never take our calling lightly. Amen? We must never fall into the trap of, well, I've been doing this a long time and I could put it on cruise control. And so David, sadly, uh, you know, you know, feeling like he has arrived. He's defeated the Ammonites. He's pushed back the Syrians. Again, he's about to announce that he, you know, he's won the Super Bowl and he's going to Disneyland, right? I mean, he's got this mentality that he's won the victories, he's won the battles, and now he's kind of taking a back seat and resting when he should be fighting. It's at this point of David's greatest strength that he falls into the deepest sin. Mel tells, tells us, therefore, tells us he who uh, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. Too often we can come to a place where we think there's certain areas where we won't fail anymore. Well, I've, I've whipped that part of my life. I've got victory over that. That's not a problem for me anymore. And David has sadly become too confident. Notice it says when kings go out to battle, who's the king? David is. So kings are going out to battle, but David's staying home. If you consider the fact that David might have had a hand And what is being recorded here in the text, what was written, David is recognizing the the horrible, horrible mistake that he made. You know, we need to stay alert. We need to be careful as a warrior not to let our guard down. To have, you know, you have to sleep with one eye open in a sense. We should always be ready and recognize that we're fighting a spiritual battle every single day. And there's nothing the enemy wants more than to distract you. Here's some things that distract us today. We can get so caught up in the economy that we don't share Jesus with people. We can get so caught up in politics that we lose sight of the Lord. We can get so caught up in COVID or whatever else is going on, and the enemy wants to distract you. May we not be distracted by the things of this world, but be faithful to the things of the Word. Amen? And be faithful to the Word of God. Rest is good, but a lack of vigilance is not. It says in Peter, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. We need to be sober. We need to be ready to be about it for the kingdom of God. You and I need to wake up recognizing we're in a spiritual battle and be prepared every day to go out into a lost and a dying world, representing our Savior to them. We must be prepared for the battle for the lost. Put on the whole armor of God. Begin, spend, and end your day in prayer. Desire the word of God more than your necessary food. It says in Galatians 5, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. See, here's what happens. David, it's not in the text, but right here is where David, when they're in battle, sleeps till noon. Gets up in the afternoon, is standing on his rooftop, looks out and who does he see bathing? Who is it? And he sees Bathsheba. And then he takes her and he lies with her. And then he has to cover it up by bringing her husband home, hoping he would lie with his wife and think he's the one that got her pregnant. And then when he doesn't, because he's a faithful man and David not so much in that moment, and so he sends Uriah back to the front line, basically has him murdered. And then he doesn't confess it. You know what has to happen? Somebody has to come to him. What was his name? Nathan has to come and say, thou art the man tells him the story about a man with a sheep and a man with many sheep, and he took the sheep away. And so here's King David, this mighty man of God being used mightily by the Lord, and he had fallen into the trap of maybe hearing all the praises of the people, crying out, David David has slayed his tens of thousands. I don't know what happened, but something happened where he became complacent, where he ceased to be humble, broken, and desperate, and usable by God, at least in that moment. And you know what? That can happen even in the church today. 
I'm going to be speaking to a bunch of pastors here in a few weeks, and they've assigned me Samson, which I'm perfectly happy about that. So we're going through Judges, and I'm going to teach you about Samson. And one thing that's on my heart, and these hundreds of pastors say, look, some of us, if we're not careful, we start to think that we're above what we teach to the people. And you see pastors that fall into that trap and people in leadership that fall into that trap that they become Christian celebrities if they're not careful. And by the way, there's only one celebrity in Christianity and his name's Jesus Christ, amen? And there's King David, he's falling into this trap. His people are out in the battle and he's napping. And then he's committing adultery. And then he's committing murder. So tragic. It's amazing how when when we are doing what we should be doing, we don't have any time to, to do the things we shouldn't be doing. Amen? If David had been out in battle, he wouldn't have seen Bathsheba bathing. If David had been out fighting the war like kings are supposed to do, this would not have been a temptation. And tragically, it's the same mistake that we can make in our own lives. You'll be either, again, you can either show restraint when you're tempted. David was tempted. When he saw her bathing, he could have just turned his head. But again, we know that he's not where, where he should be. And because of that compromise, the com you know, it's amazing how the enemy shows up when you're compromising. It's amazing how he loves to show up when you're in a place where you shouldn't be doing something you shouldn't be doing. And then he'll show up and tempt you. And when you're tempted, you can, you can resist it, like Joseph. Remember when Joseph, Potiphar's wife, tries to drag him into bed and he runs away and leaves his coat behind. You can resist the devil, he'll flee from you. You can run away from it. When you resist, you grow spiritually and the, and the devil flees. But when you indulge it, you break fellowship with God. Your reputation is destroyed. You bring harm to the cause of Christ. If you're married, you can destroy your marriage and your relationship with your children. You disqualify yourself from being used by God in the way he wants to use you. The way of the transgressor is hard. And this is King David, manna for God's own heart. Again, this chain of events, David followed all the way down to adultery and murder, and David showed his disregard for God's plan for marriage many years before that. See, again, King David is a mighty man of God, but King David at the same time was a man of compromise at times. By this point, David's already got multiple wives. And because of that, for him, taking Bathsheba is just another wife on the, on the, on the roster, right? I'm just adding another one. And the reality is that when we compromise in one area... Don't be surprised we don't start compromising more in that same area and compromising in other areas. And sadly, that's what happens in David's life. As I think about what happened, I am sure that he did not happen all at once. He was slowly compromising, and that's what happens with us as well. It's that first little compromise that leads to the next one. And before you know it, you're walking in open rebellion against God. It says in David, verse 2, took the king's crown from his head and found it to weigh a talent of gold, and there was precious stones in it. Now, between verses one and two, he kills Uriah. He has adultery with Bathsheba, and it's not in here. God shows, God by the chronicler shows that these, those going back to Jerusalem, they could still hear about it by reading through Samuel. But the point here is that they're emphasizing uh, other things that need to be known about. And so David, even though he was not out in battle, he still takes the rewards. The rewards come back. He takes the, the crown from the king who was defeated. And David's, again, we, we need to take note from David's behavior and know that's a warning for all of us. Now, the good news is we're going to find out why David's a man for God's own heart in a little bit. Because here's the difference between David and Saul. 
Because Saul, it says God regretted making him king. That, you know, and for Saul, that's heavy-duty stuff. And God ripped the kingdom from him. And we know that Saul died in a horrible... He was consulting a witch. I mean, all this stuff that Saul did. But you could say that David's sins were almost equal, maybe equal to Saul. So what's the difference? Why is one, you know, God says that he's, you know, accursed in a sense, and the other one is a matter for God's own heart. Here's the key, repentance. See, David repented. Saul, it says there's a thing where he tries to grab a hold of Samuel to get his kingdom back, but he's not really repenting as much as he just wants to keep his position. True repentance is brokenness. We're going to see that later as we continue on. So they destroyed the people of Ammon. They besieged them. David takes the king's crown for his head, found it to weigh a talent of gold. And there it was on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city with great abundance. And he brought out the people who were in it and put them to work and saws and iron picks with axes. So David did, all, did to all the cities of Ammon, Ammon. Then David and his people returned to Jerusalem. So the battle was really won by Joab. Joab is kind of an enigma to me because he's kind of an evil guy sometimes, but he always seems to be looking out for King David, even though there's some times where he's not. But he just seems to be looking out for King David. He's covering for him. And you know what he really needed? He didn't need someone to cover for him. He needed someone to confront him. Amen? He didn't need Joab. He needed Nathan. And he gets Nathan later. And so... He takes the king's crown. It's come full circle. David had stepped out of battle. It had led to sin with Bathsheba, the death of Uriah. Israel was struggling in the battle without their king. David's sin brought about heavy consequences. David's repentance brought restoration. David out of the battle, walking in sin and rebellion. He's going to repent, and God is going to forgive him. You know what? And we look at that, and we think, what a mess. But that kind of sounds kind of like my life sometimes. How about you? Amen? Where we sin... We blow it, we repent, God restores us, and we're walking with him again. Now notice in verses four through eight, we're gonna go from one example of David's we don't wanna follow, and we're gonna look at another example of David and how God used him to raise up other giant killers. Look at verse four through eight. And it says there, now it happened afterward that the war broke out against there with the Philistines, at which time Sabakah, and Hush, the Hushite killed Sipha, who was one of the sons of the giant, and they were subdued. What giant are they talking about? Goliath. Goliath. Now remember, David took five stones. The people have often wondered why he bought, picked up five stones. When he, if he was really a man of faith, why didn't he just get one stone? And most people believe that he picked up five stones because when you killed somebody, you had to fight their family. And between brothers and sons, he had four more, and he just said, well, I'll take them all. And so he picks up five stones, and now here we are. David was known. He was the only one willing to fight Goliath when everybody was scared to death, including King Saul. All of the army was petrified. Why? Because they were looking at 11 foot 750, and they were scared to death because they had a physical perspective. Kind of like people that are still wearing masks in their car when no one's in the car with them. Help me out. <laughs> people that are just afraid of everything, Right? And all the army was scared half to death. And David shows up, teenage boy, and he, does, he says, who's this uncircumcised Philistine that comes against my God? See, some people have a physical perspective and you're scared half to death. But when you have a spiritual one, if God is for us, who can be against us? And our God is greater than anything. Amen? And here he is. He goes, I'll fight him. And he takes the giant down and the Philistines run for their lives. And in the meantime, he's had many battles against the Philistines. Well, some of the giants are still alive. 
And now we see other people who were following alongside David killing giants. Where did they learn to, not walk, to walk by faith and not in fear? Where did they learn to step up and face a giant and, be, and, and do it uh, boldly? Because they had seen David do it. They had followed that example. And they saw how God was for David and God is for us. Amen? The same God that was with David in the Valley of Elah is with you when you go to work tomorrow. Amen? It's that same Holy Spirit is upon us. He gives us victory over the things of this world and helps us to walk by faith and not by sight. And it says there, again, the war was with the Philistines. And, El- and this is verse 5. Elnana, the son of Jar, killed Lami, the brother of Goliath, the Gittite. And the shaft of the spear was like a weaver's beam. He was the same kind of spear Goliath did. It talks about how he had a, a spear the size of a weaver's beam. He had this, you know, spears are usually really thin, unless you're 11 foot 750, and then he got a bigger spear. Talks about the head of the spear weighing the equivalent of 15 pounds. How much does the spear weigh when the, when the head of the spear is 15 pounds? And so this guy is equipped and he's, he's another giant and he's just as equipped as Goliath. But this man who fought him, no doubt, was just as equipped as David because the Lord was with him. It says there in verse 6, yet again, the war was at Gath where there was a man of great stature with 24 fingers and toes. Six on each hand, six on each foot. He was also born to the giant. So that's Goliath's son. So when he defiled, defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, killed him. They were born of the giant of Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. So David was a giant killer, and the guys that hung out with him became giant killers. And one of the things I was doing some counseling with somebody yesterday, and I said, look, you're going to become like the people you hang out with. That's how that works. Bad company corrupts good morals. If your friends are all chasing after the world, you'll be chasing after the world with them. If your friends are a bunch of womanizers, you're going to be a womanizer. If your friends go out and drink and party and get drunk, you're going to be right there with them. But if your friends are worshiping Jesus and serving the Lord, you'll become like them as well. Amen? You become like who you hang out with. And David was an example. Now, a bad example with Bathsheba and a good example with Goliath, amen? And again, we want to follow David's example, but not always, right? So he was a giant killer, and he'd raised up others by setting an example. And we don't have records of uh, any giant killer classes offered by David, right? You know, we're going to have a giant killer 101 this afternoon. That didn't happen. But they just saw the example of the way that he lived. You know, Paul said this, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. There's not a doubt in my mind that the Holy Spirit in all of its fullness was with David in the Valley of Elah. And people saw it. When everyone else was petrified, he was not. He stood when nobody else would. And what did that do? It gave strength to everyone else to go fight the Philistines. And the same is true when you stand for God when nobody else will. God will use you to be an example to other people, to encourage them that we can stand for the Lord and not be discouraged or worried or overwhelmed by the things of the world. So point number one and two there, compromise that leads to sin. And then we saw how to raise giant killers. How do we do that? Find faithful men and pour your life into them or other women. Lead by example. And again, how do we compromise by not being where we're supposed to be and when you're not faithful to God's calling upon your life? So point number three, pride goes before destruction. Now we get to chapter 21. And so we've just seen two different 
things we see David compromising, and then we see victory over the giants. And now we come to chapter 21. It says, now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. Now what's interesting, when you look at it in, in Samuel, it says, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he, Satan, moved against David to say, go and number the children of Judah. Now, the Lord had been angered against Israel, and so Satan, by the way, you know Satan can't do anything without God's permission. Amen? Amen. Satan is a defeated foe. He's not the opposite of God, right? And people, and, and we don't, he's not under every rock. I told someone yesterday, you know that Satan's not omnipresent. That just blew his mind. You mean he can't be everywhere at once? No. He's a fallen angel. Amen? Now, he has a third of the angels with him, and we do fight a spiritual battle. We know that's a fa- I think when we get to heaven, I don't know if God's going to give us a, a picture of what it was like all around us when we were down here, but I think if and when he does, we are going to be blown away. Amen? But, but again, that battle is all around us, but if God is for us, who can be against us? So it says that Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number them. Now, why is numbering them a big deal? Now, he's won a bunch of battles, and at this point, he's counting up his army. He doesn't need to count them up because there's not any imminent war coming. But part of the problem is, is that it tells us that those who count things up believe that they belong to them in a sense. So if he counts up the army, he's going to fall into the trap of thinking it's his army. It's not his army, it's God's army, amen? And again, I hear this with pastors sometimes. Well, I've got, you know, 6,000 people in my church. Well, first of all, you don't have any people. They're God's people. You don't have any sheep. They're God's sheep. You're just a shepherd. Amen? And there's a mentality. We fall into the trap of thinking that somehow we've arrived. Here's the reality. God can use a donkey if he wants to. He doesn't need us. We need him. Amen? So he tells him to go number Israel. Hey, go, go count up all the people you've got. Man, your army's grown, dude. You're, man, you're, you're all about it, man. Go, go count up your army. Go count them up. And then sadly, David's going to fall. And the, and the danger here is pride. The danger here is pride. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. And so it says, so David said to Joab, to the leaders of the people, go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring the number of them to me that I may know it. Now, Dan to Beersheba, whenever you see that in the Bible, if you've ever been to Israel... We know that Dan is the northernmost part and Beersheba is the southernmost part. And basically what he's telling them is I want you to number all the people in Israel now. Look, we were, you know, I'm now the king. I'm now reigning. We've won battles. We've whipped our enemies. We've expanded our borders. Go count up for me and let me know how many people we have on our side. And again, it's not how many people we have on our side that really matters because if God is for us, who can be against us? David may have wanted to puff up his chest and brag about the size of his army. Perhaps after all the rebellion, David feels like if he pulls the entire nation into a massive army recruitment, it will remind him of just who's in charge, that it's him. It says in Psalm, David wrote him this, this himself. David wrote this in Psalms. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. He needed to remind himself of that, Amen. Quit, quit trusting in the size of your army and trust in the greatness of your God. God. God doesn't like us doing things out of pride. 
says in First in Peter, yes, all, you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Don't we hate pride in other people? <laughs> Amen. When you see it in someone else, it's nauseating. Dude, get over yourself. You know what I mean? You see someone thumping their chest and talk, you know, a guy tackles a guy 14 yards downfield and doing this and pointing at his name. You're like, dude, get back in the huddle and shut up, right? And there's this mentality. We hate pride in other people, but we all struggle with it. We all think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. And in ancient times, again, only, they only counted something when they owned it. And the people weren't David's, they were the Lord's, but he's falling into this trap. We know it's a trap because the enemy is the one who, who comes first and says, hey, go count your people, David. Let's go look at how amazing you are. While counting the size of your army makes sense for all other nations, God is the real king of Israel, and he's the only one that brings them victory in battle. And so too, as the world obsesses about money or uh, see it as their source of security, by the way, how's that stock market working out? How's your 401k looking? Here's the good news. God's in control. The best 401k is heaven. Amen? Our security is in Christ. He is Jehovah Jireh, Lord God, our provider. And while we're called to be good stewards of God's provision, our hope, our faith, our trust should be in the Lord, not in our bank accounts. Amen? Trust in the Lord. Trust in his faithfulness. We have adopted into his family. We're born again, new creations in Christ. Just doesn't get any better than that. Amen? So notice he says, so he goes out and sends him out from Dan to Beersheba. It's going to take him, we know from looking in the other texts, it takes him nine months to count all the people. It's, it's, it, he didn't just go out and do it in an afternoon. This became something that consumed his generals, they had to go around and find all the people and count them all up, and he's going to give them some numbers here in a minute. Look, look at verse 3, and it says, And Joab answered, May the Lord make his people a hundred times more than they are. But my Lord, the King, are they not all my Lord's servants? Why then does my Lord require this thing? Why should he cause, be a cause of guilt in Israel? Now, Joab is giving him godly advice right here. It's like, hey, they all belong to you. And look, may they number a hundred times more than they are, but aren't they all gods anyway? And why would you bring you know, God's wrath upon us by doing this. So Joab tried to advise the king. Joab, again, was a cruel man, but his advice, and his advice was not always godly, but it was godly at this point. And Joab is right this time. He should have trusted God. God gave David the soldiers he needed, but David refused to follow Joab's advice. And Joab, again, did not always follow David's advice. He killed Absalom, his own son. You guys were here for that. And David wins the argument this time. So Joab, again, is going to go out and do as his king commands. And you know what? We all need someone who loves us enough to tell us what we, when we're acting contrary to the word of God. We need somebody who loves us enough to say, what are you doing? Why are you acting that way? You've heard me say, Christians don't stab each other in the back. They should stab each other in the front. Amen? Dude, why are you doing that? Why are you going there? Why are you acting that way? We all need people who love us enough to hold us accountable. Amen? And we can fall into the trap of being afraid to do that. Surround yourself with people that love you enough to tell you the truth, even if you don't want to hear it. Amen? Then it says in verse 4, Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Therefore, Joab departed and went throughout all of Israel and came to Jerusalem. Then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people. And all Israel had 1,100,000 men who drew the sword. And Judah had 470,000 men who drew the sword. 
But he did not count Levi and Benjamin among them, for the king's word was abominable to Joab. See, Joab knew it was wrong to count them. He's going to take a shortcut and not even count two of the tribes. He just wants to get it over with, give a number to David and move on because he knows this is contrary to the will of God. And for us, it's an example that, you know, if you put your faith in anything else, if you're putting your trust in your job or your health or your, your you know, it says a young man's pride is in his strength or whatever that thing is that you're putting your faith in other than the Lord, it's something you can lose. But the thing we will never lose is the Lord. Amen. The thing we will never lose is his promises. The thing we'll never lose is the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. And we need to put our faith in the Lord our God, not in the chariots, not in the bank accounts, not in our health, not in the things of this world, not in our talents, not in our gifting, not in our education. I'm not saying those things are all wrong, but we don't put our faith in those things. We put our faith in the Lord, amen? And him and him alone do we follow with our whole heart. So, Joab and the captains and all the kings are out there counting up all the people. They come back and, and David, having not heeded the council, he lets them know how many people they have. Look at all these numbers of people. And David could have start, started getting puffed up. Man, when I came here, this place was a mess and I've joined them all back together. And now look at, we've, we've defeated all of our enemies and look at the size of our army. And before you know it, you cease to be desperate for God. One of my prayers I pray often is, Lord, don't give me anything more than I, if, don't give me anything that will cause me to cease to be desperate for you. You know what? I think winning the lottery could be the worst. First of all, you shouldn't be playing it. But if you won the lottery, that might be the worst thing that ever happened to you. Because then you're just going to think that you're going to trust in your bank account instead of trusting in the Lord. So there's 1.1 million men who can draw the sword, makes the estimated total of the people between four and five million, because he's talking about the young and strong men who can wield the sword, so he's not counting the children, he's not counting the women, he's not counting the elderly. And so, so the, the, the kingdom has grown to four or five million, and it would be easy for David to go to the next, uh, you know, king's, uh, you know, retreat. How many people you got? I got, I got five million, man. Check me out, right? And there's this mentality that can take place, even in ministry, where we think of our success based on the number of people that we minister to. And let's face it, again, if the, if the Lord doesn't show up, we shouldn't be ministering to anybody, amen? We're worthless without the Lord's help. It says in verse 7, And God was displeased with this thing, therefore he struck Israel. So Joab gave him godly counsel. He didn't listen. He did contrary to what the word of God, what the Lord wanted him to do. He listened to Satan and then God brings consequences. Now, this is how a lot of people act. They go contrary to the word of God. They listen to the temptation that Satan brings. Then they go out and just you know, take advantage of that thing and, and feed their flesh. And then when God brings righteous judgment, they get mad at him. I don't understand why God's mad at me, man. I don't understand. You know, I, I don't know why the Lord let my girlfriend get pregnant. Well, there's a way around that, bro. <laughs> Amen. I've had that conversation more times than I can count. You know, if the Lord loved me, you wouldn't let her get pregnant. If you love the Lord, you wouldn't be sleeping with her until you're married to her. Amen? Amen. It's amazing how we will go out and sin. We will go out and live contrary to the word of God. And then judgment comes and we're mad at God. You know what? It's because God loves you that he brings righteous judgment upon you so that you might repent and return home. Amen? Those who the Lord loves, he what? He disciplines. He loves David. 
He's going to strike Israel. A godly life is a holy life and a fruitful life. It is also a life that is sensitive to sin and is humbled and convicted by our sin and is quick to repent. Notice what David does. Look what it says there in verse 8. So David said to God, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing. Now, this is why David is a man for God's own heart. Because see, when you sin, there's one of three ways you can respond. You can make excuses, you can accuse others, or you can repent. Amen? David could have said, it wasn't me, it was Joab. (laughs) Right? He could have... He could have said, well, Lord, I was just counting them up to see how well you were doing. I mean, right? There's this mentality. Instead, when David's confronted with this sin, he's convicted by the Holy Spirit. And what does he say? I have sinned greatly because I've done this. But now I pray, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Guys, I want to encourage you that this is the example we should follow when when the Holy Spirit confronts us about the sin in our life. When we're confronted, it should draw us, drawing us to our knees and ask God to forgive us. And I don't mean a week from Wednesday. I mean right now. Amen? The quicker that we, you know, the sign of spiritual maturity, you've heard me say it a hundred times, the more mature we get spiritually, the less and less time between when we sin and when we repent. It becomes closer and closer. Early on, it might have been weeks, and it was days, then it was hours, then it was minutes, and now it should be seconds. Amen? I know for me that when I even have a thought or I start to say, I'm, I'm just convicted, oh Lord, forgive me. And it should be immediate. And it's a mark of someone who's walking with the Lord. David's heart and the Holy Spirit conviction condemned him. And again, he did not heed what he had been told. He had been given godly counsel. He'd been tempted by the enemy. And the marks of a godly man or woman again, or a life lived with a desire to live holy and to bear fruit. A godly life is a holy life and a fruitful life, and we want to have lives that bear fruit. I've sinned greatly. Again, there's spiritual maturity. The conviction leads quickly to confession. David doesn't try to hide from his sin or make excuses. He comes humbly before the Lord and confesses his sin and asks for forgiveness. In Psalm 51.10, David said this, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me, a heart of humility, repentance, and a desire to be restored. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. My prayer for all of us, if there's a sin that's in your life, if God's quickened your heart tonight about something that you're involved in, that you need to get right with the Lord, I pray you wouldn't leave here without getting right with him. Amen? That, it, that when we're convicted by our sin, that it would be immediate, that it would drive us to our knees, that we would not make excuses for it. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. And it says in verse 9, the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, or prophet, saying, go tell David, saying, thus says the Lord, I offer you three things to choose one of them for yourself that I may do it to you. So here's what happens. David repents. God forgives, but consequences remain. And the Lord is going to give him three choices for what the consequences will be. So because of what you've done, there will be consequences. And now he's going to give him three choices. Look what it says here in verse 11. So Gad came to David and said, thus says the Lord, choose for yourself. Either three years of famine or three months of being defeated by your your foes with the sword 
of your enemies overtaking you, or else three days of the sword of the Lord, the plague in the land, with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now consider what answer I should take back to him who sent me. Now, which one of these do you want? Three years of famine, three months of your enemy defeating you. By the way, how's that pride working out for you? You've numbered your, you've numbered your army. If God is against you, God will smoke that army and you'll have three months of defeat. Or three months of the angel of the Lord bringing righteous judgment against you. Three days, excuse me. Now, who's the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament? Who is that? It's Jesus. Now, some would debate that, but I, I believe clearly that whenever you see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, it's the Lord. Now, what's interesting about this is he's got a choice to make. He allows David to choose. That seems odd, doesn't it? He's going to be punished, but he's given a choice. And I think the choice he's going to make is going to show us where David's heart is. If there were three years of famine, do you think David would eat just fine? What do you think? He's the king. He'd be fine. He might not even touch him. Three years of famine will be rough on his people, but you know the guy up in the palace probably going to have some food. Kids probably going to be taken care of. Could have relied on the neighboring nations on, uh, for food. And again, many people would die, mainly the weak and the poor. Three months of war. Blame from the enemy, Israel under attack. Again, David, the soldiers would die. If David didn't go out into battle with them, he'd probably survive it. So these two are going to be harder on his people but not as hard on him. And then the finally three days of plague, all would be afflicted, the rich and the poor, soldiers and common people, men, women, and children, and certainly David and his family. So what choice did David make? And I love his answer, I really do. Look at verse 13, and it says there, and David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercies are very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. What he says is, look, I deserve this, and I do not want to get judgment from men. I want the righteous judgment of God, because he is a merciful God. He is the one who I sinned against. He is the one who I follow. Let him be the one to judge me. I put my judgment in his hands. David would rather be in God's mercy than in man's mercy. He had learned how cruel men could be, but give us the plague, Lord. David surrendering to the mercy of God and into the hands of God, and that's, a, that's the best place for us to be. So point number three, four there is the conviction of the Holy Spirit. There is no conviction. There's been no conversion. David totally blew it, but when confronted, he quickly repented. Look at verse uh, number five is the consequences of succumbing to temptation. Look what happens here, beginning there in verse 14. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell. Hey, that number that you just counted up, you got 70,000 less now. You had to count them up and see how prideful you could be. And look at that army of yours. I, I could wipe them all out in five seconds. And 70,000 of them, just to give you an idea that you're not as great as you think you are. So the plague falls upon him. Sin has consequences. Has, does God forgive you when you repent? What's the answer? You believe that God has forgiven David. What's the answer? Absolutely. But guess what? Sin's consequences remain. And now 70,000 people have died. By the way, when you sin, it always impacts more than just you. 
If you're, a, if you're a husband and a father, your sin can impact your wife and your children. If you're a wife, your sin can impact your husband and your children. It can destroy your testimony. It can harm people around you. Our sin has an impact on more than just us. Amen? And that's what happens in David. David sinned and 70,000 people who had nothing to do with counting everybody up died because of what David did. Sin has consequences. God may again, God will forgive us. He's faithful and just to forgive us. At the same time, consequences. You've heard me say it many times. Sin is not bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad. See, sin isn't bad just because God, oh, God forbid it just because he wants to test us. No, he forbid it because he knows it will harm us. Amen? So it's not bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad and it will bring harm to us. Look at verse 15. Notice what happens. It said, God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. And as he was destroying, the Lord looked and relented of the disaster and said to the angel who was destroying, it is enough. Now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornon, the Jebusite. So destruction begins. God withholds his hand, shows mercy. Even though destruction had come, 70,000 people had died in the midst of wiping out Jerusalem. We, and then it says in verse 16 there, where David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between the earth and heaven, having in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. So David and the elders clothed in sackcloth fell on their faces. I guess so. Can you imagine if we went out tomorrow morning and we saw hovering over the United States, the angel of the Lord holding a sword in his hand, ready to wipe us out off the face of the earth. And by the way, if he did, we deserve every bit of it as a nation, amen? But as he's holding that sword, can you, uh, where else are you gonna go but on your face before him, amen? It's gonna bring us to the end of ourselves. By the way, I pray that whatever it's gonna take to bring revival to our nation, even if it includes the greatest uh, you know, tragedies of life taking place to us, whatever it takes to get us to repent, that's what needs to happen, amen? Because that's what really matters. The only thing we're taking to heaven with us is people. So David lifts up his eyes and he sees the angels and now he's, you know, the angel of the Lord, he repents, he falls on his face. You know, God asked the angel to take a break, it's enough. God is going to give David a chance to do something here. And notice he's there at the threshing floor and David's in sackcloth and ashes. The consequences of sin, succumbing to temptation, it impacts more than just you, it impacts others around you. And it says in verse 17, and David said to God, was it not I who commanded the people to be numbered? I am the one who has sinned and done evil indeed. But these sheep, what have they, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, O Lord God, be against me and my father's house, but not against your people, that they should be plagued. See, David confesses and he sees the consequences of his sin and it breaks his heart to see all these other people who've been impacted by the choice that he made. They didn't do it, he did it, but now they're paying the price for it. And can there be anything more, I mean, how heartbreaking must that be? And I wanna say this too, again, it go, goes back to our families. You know, we have children and grandchildren. We, we have coworkers and others that look at us as an example. And, and if we're a horrible example, you know the number one problem in our, one of the biggest problems in our country today is too many families without dads, amen? And that's the problem. And you know what we need? We need godly dads to step up, amen? 
By the way, I got a call today. There's a foreign exchange student coming from, from Italy. They're looking for a place for her to live, 17 years old, and they want her in a godly home, and I pray that somebody in our church will be able to step up and have her live with her for nine months. Amen? You know what? I, well, look, that's a divine appointment to minister to somebody for nine, and you'll, and you'll learn some Italian while you're there. Amen? But I look for divine appointments. The only thing that matters in heaven, the only thing we're taking with us to heaven is people. Amen? And David's heart is broken. He's like, Lord, it was my fault. Why are they paying the price? Well, because you're their king. Because I put you in that position of authority. I'm the one that went out and, and got addicted to drugs and alcohol. Now, why, why are my kids fought? Because you're their dad. I'm the one that went out and did this and lost all. And now my, my family's, because you, you were put in position of headship over their lives. I'm the one that, that blew it and now my company's gone out of business and all, all my employees lost their jobs because you were put in that position and you failed. And that's what's happened here with David. David, choice has impacted more than just himself. And so too, our sin impacts more than just us. David's saying, if there's a price to be paid, I'll pay it. Well, you know what's amazing about that is that's a picture of somebody who did come later. What was his name? Jesus. Because you know what? There was a price to be paid. And he paid the price when he didn't do anything wrong and we did everything wrong. Amen? He's the one that paid the price for us. A man of mature faith takes responsibility for his actions and repents. And his heart is broken when he sees the impact it's having on others. Point number six, we cannot sacrifice that which costs us nothing. So here's David. He's saying, Lord, why don't you punish me? It was my fault. Take my life. To bring the harm to me. Let me pay the price for it. Not these people that didn't do it. It's my fault. And then what happens? Look what happens here. It says, verse 18, therefore the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. So he's saying, Lord, let me pay the price. So here's what he does. He tells the prophet to come to David and he tells David to go erect an altar and there's something behind this because the Bible rocks, amen? Now watch what happens. Now it said, so David went up at the word of Gad, which was the word of the Lord. He was God's, you know, prophet, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan turned and saw the angel and his four sons who were with him hid themselves, but Ornan continued threshing wheat. So Ornan's up there threshing wheat. And one of the things I love, I love Israel, been there many times. We're gonna go again, we need to go. But there's a thing called, I forget what it's called, it's kind of called like Bible land or something. And what they do is they have all these examples of things that you read about in the Bible, right? And one of them is a threshing floor. And I remember going there, and a threshing floor always has to kind of be elevated. And what it does is it separates the wheat from the chaff. And what they do is they take what they, you know, they harvest and they throw it up in the air and the wind blows and it blows away the chaff and the wheat settles to the ground of the threshing floor. And then they're there to take what is on the threshing floor and they can take that and, and you know, and, and refine it and turn it into flour for bread and things like that. And the Bible talks about he, that the, when the Lord comes, he'll separate the wheat from the chaff. Now, who's the wheat? Who's the wheat? We are, the believers, amen? And, and then who's the chaff? Unbelievers, right? And so sometimes it even talks about the, the chaff growing up amongst the wheat and you can't tell the difference till it's time for the harvest. And we'll know then. And so he's up on the threshing floor and his four sons see the angel of the Lord and they're like, dude, I'm out of here. 
And Ornan just keeps working on the threshing floor. Again, the angel, you always have these people say, when I stand before God, I'm going to have questions. You're going to have no questions about nothing, bro. When you're in the presence of the creator of the universe, you're going to be face down with the rest of us. Amen? Worshiping the king of kings. So David had met the angel of the Lord at the threshing floor of Ornan. And look what he says here. I love this. So David came to Ornan and looked and, and he saw David and he went out from the threshing floor and bowed before David with his face to the ground. So here comes his king. He's out there threshing wheat. And again, I, I try to think of an analogy. Maybe, and we don't bow to, we don't bow to, pre, we don't bow to anybody but Jesus. Amen. But you know, imagine if you're, you know, you're working on your car in your driveway and up pulls the president of the United States. I, I'd probably try to help the brother out, but you know what I mean? But the point I'm making is, can you imagine somebody with, well, imagine if Jesus showed up. All of a sudden, working on the car wouldn't be that important, amen? And here's Ornan, he, the king shows up and he falls down on his face before him. David had, again, met the angel of the Lord. He comes to Ornan to purchase the threshing floor because he'd been told by the Lord to, to erect an altar there, a place of worshiping God. You know what worship does? It gets our eyes back on the Lord. Amen? See, David had put his eyes on the number of men that he had and the size of his army and the greatness of his kingdom. And then God brought righteous judgment while wiping some of them out. And then he came along and he... I was bringing judgment upon the people. And now what does the Lord do? I need you to get your eyes back on me. And you know what? That needs to happen in all of our lives. When we get so caught up in the world, that the remedy for that is to get our eyes back on Jesus. Amen? When I was a youth pastor, I used to say, I want to spend the next four years, if I can get you from turning like this and get you doing this, I've done what I'm called to do. Did you quit looking around at the world and so focus on the things of this world that are all passing away and get your eyes set firmly on Jesus and Lord, help us, amen? Now, what I love about this is Arnon's a farmer, by the way. He's out there threshing wheat. And all of a sudden, there's the king. They've already seen the angel of the Lord. Every, all his sons ran away. And the location of the threshing floor has a great significant, significance in history. This threshing floor is on Mount Moriah, Look what it says here. It goes before David, he falls his face ground, and David said to Ornan, grant me the place of this threshold that I may build an altar on it to the Lord. You shall grant it to me at full price that this plague may be withdrawn from the people. So David's like, look, we need to get back to worshiping the Lord. We need to build an altar, make a sacrifice to God yet again, the sacrifice, of course, pointing to Jesus. And we know that from, we're gonna see here that it's on Mount Moriah. Now, Mount Moriah, what's significant about Mount Moriah? A couple things. Uh, earlier, when Abraham is told after he's given a son, after waiting all the years for a son, and then he blows it initially and sleeps with his handmaiden and gets Ishmael, and he finally gets a son. What's the son's name? Isaac. And what happens is remember that the Lord appears to Abraham and tells him to sacrifice his son. And he takes his son up the mountain to sacrifice him. And his son says to him as he's carrying the wood up the hill, and we got the wood and we got the makings for the fire, but where's the sacrifice? And he says, God will provide himself a sacrifice. And then as he gets him up there, Isaac lays himself down. And, and at this point, Isaac, a lot of people depict Isaac as a little boy. That's not the case. He was a grown man. I believe, this is Pastor Day's opinion. Okay, I'm going to stand over here. I think he was probably 33 years old because that just makes perfect sense to me. Okay, because someone else was on that mountain at 33 years old. Who was that? 
okay? And, and this is clearly a type of Christ. And he literally lays there and he's going to let his dad kill him. And as he does it, he, the Lord stops him and says, God stops it. Now I know you will hold nothing back from me. And then there's a, a ram caught in the thicket. He makes him a sacrifice. Well, that was Mount Moriah. That had happened in the past. David's on Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah in the future is where Jesus would be crucified. Now, does the Bible rock or what? Because here he's telling him, look, if you want to get back to me, get back in right just stand, you know, place with me, back in fellowship with me, you want to set aside, put this sinful behavior behind you, you need to build an altar here and make a sacrifice. And guys, the only way that we can get right with God and leave our sin behind is get right with the one who was sacrificed in that same place, Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. Amen? Bible's good stuff. The temple would be built on Mount Moriah. Jesus would be crucified on Mount Moriah. And at this threshing floor location, the Lord would separate the wheat from the chaff. He would later do that on the cross of Calvary. So Ornan says to him, he's saying, look, I'll buy it for me for full price. I'll give you whatever it costs. I'll pay the full thing. I want to give it to you. But Ornan, verse 23, said to David, take it to yourself and let the Lord of the king do what is good in his eyes. I'll also give you the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing implements for the wood and the wheat and the grain for offering. I give it all to you. Now, this is a man who gets it that we're going to make an altar for the Lord. And that means I'll give up everything for it. Nothing else. I, I can get another altar. I can build another threshing floor, but I want to give everything I have for the Lord. Verse 24, then King David said to Ornan, no, but I will surely buy it from you at full price for I will not take that which is yours for the Lord nor offer burnt offering with which costs me nothing. See, David understood that a true sacrifice comes with sacrifice. There must be a sacrifice on our part. There must, a sacrifice must take place. Enthusiastically, he wants to give it all to the king, and the king says, no, no, no. You know, to truly follow the Lord to truly serve the Lord, it's going to cost us something, our resources, our time, our talents. But really, what it really comes down to is us surrendering our lives fully to him. We're called to give God our best, not the rest of what's left over. We're to make sacrifice. If you make a sacrifice before the Lord, sacrifices are made of your time, again, of your talents, of your resources, your comfort, your career, a relationship, your children, your family, your hobby. If you will not make sacrifices for the Lord, he is not your God. You know, it's real, you know what I see when I see people serving faithfully? You can ask all the assistant pastors here when we talk about different things. We have an elders meeting tonight. Well, they'll hear it tonight. When you see somebody being used mildly, there's one word for it. It's calling. That person's been called by God, and they do it as unto the Lord. You know what? You can see calling in the way people set up chairs and the way that they lead us in worship and the way they hand out bulletins and the way that they make sourdough bread for us. Can I get an amen to that? <laughs> That it's a calling and a gifting to minister to other people and to do it sacrificially and unto the Lord. Amen? He said, I'm not going to offer a, a, an offering that costs me nothing. In a sense, we no longer practice sacrifice because Jesus paid the price. Yet there's another sense in which the principle of sacrifice still applies to us. It says in Romans 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a what? A living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. We learn to give our bodies to the Lord. 
but it's not always easy. Sometimes I want to do what I want to do with my own body. And learning to say no to myself isn't fun, but it can, and it can be costly. It says in Philippians 2, yes, I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith. I am glad and rejoice in it all. Some of Paul's ministry to others was like a sacrifice. It says in Hebrews, therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Sometimes you don't feel like praising God, but that's when we need to do it. Amen? That's when we need to do it the most. We need to do it anyway. It may cost you emotionally. So David, look at verse 25 as we finish up there. Says there, so David gave Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the place, and David built this altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord, and he answered him from heaven by fire on the altar of the burnt offering. Wow. So David builds the altar. When the sacrifice was made, the Lord heeded his prayers, and the plague was removed, and David's obedience was blessed. And God showed his presence by fire. He's done that throughout scripture. Remember Moses and the, and the tabernacle, right? The fire that appeared above it and led them through the wilderness. Solomon in the temple. Elijah and the prophets of Baal. He brought fire down to show his presence. And again, this lesson we see here that God brings his presence. The fire comes down. Give you both that of judgment, but, though, but that of just his presence. And this is the house of the Lord God and the altar of burnt offering of Israel, it says in 1 Chronicles 22. In 2 Chronicles 3, we're going to see now Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Same place. So just a few chapters from now, we're going to see the temple, the remembrance of the temple being built in this very same place. See, nothing happens by chance with our God. Amen? He's a God of order. He knows what he's doing. He's a faithful God. He's greater than we will ever understand. Last few verses. So the Lord commanded the angel and he returned his sword to his sheath. He put the sword away. Took the sword and he put it away. The angel of the Lord. Again, God is no longer at war with us because Jesus paid the price for our sins. Amen? That, that sword's been put away for the time being. He's not at war with us because, again, through the shed blood of, on the cross of Calvary, he made peace with us. It says in Romans 5, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Romans 5, 1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. We're not at war with God anymore. We're at peace with God. He's for us. He's not against us. He's on our side. He's written our name in the Lamb's book of life. He's given us his Holy Spirit. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. Praise God, amen? Seven bucks a gallon, no big deal. God is for us. It doesn't matter what's going on in the White House. God is for us. God is greater. God is on the throne. He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords. There's no other God before him, beside him, or after him. And greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world, Amen? And then finally he says this, his sacrifice is enough. Look at verse 20. And at that time when David saw that the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite, he sacrificed there for the tabernacle of the Lord and the altar burnt offering which Moses had made in the wilderness were at that time at the high place in Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of the Lord for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. In other words, again, there have been two places of worship, and now this is a place that would become a place of worship and remembrance going forward because there was a day coming when Jesus would be crucified on that hill. 
So lessons learned from the life of David. We see that compromise can lead to sin. He became lackadaisical. He was no longer, you know, going out to battle like the king should. He would stay back when everybody else was, was entered into to the battle. And as believers, we shouldn't be sitting on the sideline just waiting to go to heaven. God wants to use you for his kingdom and for his glory. We saw how to raise giant killers. Be a Christ-like example. Let others see that in you, that behavior, that they might want to follow it. And again, it's only because of the Lord that giants can be, t- be taken down. Pride goes before destruction. We saw the devil... Again, that temptation came. David David did not have to succumb to it, but he did. And because of his pride and wanting to number his army, wanting to see what a great man he was, righteous judgment came. We saw the conviction of the Holy Spirit when God confronted him. And David, after making a horrible choice and a horrible mistake and being filled with pride, he dropped to his knees and he repented. And that's why he was a man for God's own heart. We saw the consequences of succumbing to temptation. It impacts more than just you. It impacts people around you and often the people that you love the most. We cannot sacrifice that that which costs us nothing. Again, to serve the Lord, he's given everything for us. We should not feel, oh, it's inconvenient for me to serve the Lord. I hope so. I really do. I hope it's really inconvenient. I hope it's going to cost you some sleep and some time. He went to the cross for us. We can be inconvenienced for him. Can I get an amen to that? And then finally, his sacrifice is enough. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. We love you. We thank you for the living, breathing word of God. I thank you for everyone who's here, all those watching on live stream, those that will watch this later. I pray that we've been exhorted, encouraged, rebuked if necessary. I pray, Lord, that you, would do a, that you would move in our hearts. We pray that you would move in the Caneo Valley and beyond. We pray for revival and that your will would be done. And Lord, I pray that we would, again, be drawn to our knees, a place of humility and brokenness. May we be usable for your kingdom and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said...